Hyde Park United Methodist in Tampa, Florida, this is the Bible Project 2020, a journey to reading the Bible without fear or frustration. I'm your host, Matt Hotho. Today's episode features the Reverend Dr. Dan Johnson. Dan is a retired pastor in the Florida Conference of the United Methodist Church, having served in ministry for over 40 years. Dan received his PhD in biblical studies from Princeton University. Dan is married to his wife of almost 48 years, Jan, and they have two children and three grandchildren. Dan joins Chris Hockman and me for a discussion of the book of Isaiah with particular attention paid to themes of hope and judgment, as well as the church's role in being a prophetic voice in the world. And if you haven't heard an episode with Chris Hockman yet, Chris is a member of the podcast team and a seminary graduate from Australia who attended Hyde Park United Methodist and produces episodes for our podcast. We've started our journey in Isaiah, but now we come to a really interesting part of Isaiah. Um, So we're sort of in the middle of Isaiah, moving through, getting to these sort of big shifts in the book. But I know one thing that you have uh, a lot of experience with is this little apocalypse, uh, 24 to 27. What about that passage sort of gripped you in? I think what gripped me in there was trying to determine the identity of the unknown city. Nobody seemed to know what that major city was that was going to be destroyed. Now, the whole earth is being destroyed, and there, so that's why it's called the little apocalypse. But who's the identity? What's going on there? And uh, my studies, now, you know, not every scholar has accepted my identification of the city, but my identification of the city is that it's Jerusalem. And there are a couple of keys to that. I mean, Jerusalem is hammered off and on throughout Isaiah. Isaiah, as you know, has this juxtaposition of offering hope about Jerusalem being eternal, uh, but also how flawed and corrupt and how it's going to be destroyed. But there are two key phrases in there that I think just stand out. And one is, it's the city is referred to as Mesosa Aretz, which means the joy of the earth, which is an epithet for Jerusalem and other places in the Bible. And it's also called Bekerev Haaretz, which means the center of the earth. Jerusalem uh, was believed to be, by the Israelites, to be the center of the earth. In the Hebrew Bible, those two phrases are clear flags that the reference is to Jerusalem. And so it looks like to me that's what's happening. And, and, and it probably refers to uh, Jerusalem when it was destroyed in 587 by Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, is there, there's always this tension, I think, when we say the word apocalypse, everybody gets these end-of-the-world ideas in their head, but that's not really what apocalypses are about, necessarily. A lot of the time they're about something much sooner than that. Uh, true, but in a sense, <laughs> the end of the world is a relative term, isn't it? I mean, it, you've heard the phrase, it feels like the end of the world. I mean, every teenager thinks they're going through the end of the world. The other interesting thing in there is, and you see this throughout Isaiah, where there are the seeds of phrases and ideas that take full bloom uh, later in the Isaiahic corpus, later in the Hebrew Bible, but also in the New Testament. So in there, you have this phrase of that uh, death is swallowed up by victory. Uh, and you have the sort of um, sort of Mesopotamian image of this jaws of, of uh, death, but being swallowed up. And so Paul takes that, 1 Corinthians 15. So that's there in that little apocalypse too. In the midst of destruction, there's this amazing sign of hope. 
I've just been reading Eric Larson's wonderful book, uh, The Splendid in the Bile. It's about uh, the Churchill, uh, the war years of Churchill's prime ministership. And, and, and they say Churchill has the, had this amazing ability to present reality in stark terms. I mean, he didn't mince words up, but he always then went on to convey a sense of hope. And as, as you probably know, and you've sensed this in the, your, your study of Isaiah, that's this dance that Isaiah does in uh, Isaiah 40 and following. There a sense to me in Isaiah that we need these kind of things to really understand the hope. Like even in the little apocalypse, we see this hope throughout. But there's this feeling that without this, we're not really going to understand what comes later. I think you're absolutely right. And so there's this tension. Like, I think a lot of us are very familiar with these hopeful passages you talk about, right? Like, everybody I feel like knows Isaiah 53. You know, and even in Isaiah 53, there's this sort of, it's not all positive. I think we see God's pathos. Here you have one of the highest views of God in all of Scripture there in Isaiah. Uh, he's the incomparable one. Uh, he doesn't grow weary. He's beyond. I mean, it's just amazing. And yet, Yet you have this pathos that comes through in the servant songs that you will get to, but uh, particularly in Isaiah 53. So it's that, that God entering in with us. I wrote a little book uh, whew, 30 years ago, and in there is a chapter on Isaiah. So I said he's one of the greatest figures in all of history. And I mentioned five areas. His ideas of God constitute a high watermark in the theology of the Old Testament of the Hebrew Bible. His poetry has been hailed as the very best in all of literature. It's structure, parallelism, chiasmus, double entendre. Mm -hmm. He's a statesman of the first order. I think that's an interesting idea about being a statesman because we, we often think of the prophets as strictly the outsider, the sort of uh, gadfly, whereas mm -hmm. Isaiah was really in the court. He was within, and, and I think the church wrestles with that, doesn't it? Of um, are we an outsider? Do we speak from within? And if we speak from within, how do we do that with integrity without compromising our integrity? And so Isaiah, I think, presents a, a wonderful model of speaking truth uh, from within the context of uh, being truly an insider. Um, and I mentioned he has some of the greatest ideas of the ages, uh, the holiness of God. I mean, the, the phrase... Uh, the Holy One of Israel, uh, no fewer than 30 times is that occurring there. Uh, the notion of redemptive suffering, I, and you mentioned Isaiah 53. I think we Christians sometimes are, need to be more careful how we interpret uh, prophecies, particularly Isaiah. I think it's okay to interpret Isaiah 53 as being fulfilled fully in the person of Jesus. But I also think we need to make sure we don't do a disservice to the Hebrew people, because I think Isaiah probably was referring to the remnant or a, a group of Hebrew or the Israel and its role uh, as redemptive suffering for the whole world, which is a staggering concept. But um, I think Israel has, in some sense, played that, uh, fulfilled that role. You've probably talked about the nature of the prophetic word or maybe the whole scripture but it it has meaning in its immediate context clearly 
but it has an ongoing life. I think what's hard sometimes is we're quick to take the biblical text and apply it to our modern context. That's okay to do, but first, there's a little bit of pre-work you want to do ahead of time. You kind of want to warm up to it by understanding the context of how the first people would receive that text, and then the second people might have received that text, and then maybe early Christians, and then us, right? And that can give you a a better understanding of how to actually apply that text. A lot of the... I mean, you know, Isaiah's call and there in chapter six, he had this awful task of taking what he heard and his message, knowing that the people wouldn't apply it. <laughs> they wouldn't hear it. Uh, and so uh, easy application is probably not the intent of the scripture. The, uh, another aspect of, uh, I think, of all the prophets, particularly Isaiah and, and maybe Amos, or certainly Amos was, it was so anti-religious hypocrisy. Mm. He would talk about their religious fast. That's more in 57. He wanted true religion of uh, taking care of the poor and uh, being sensitive to social justice. I mean, interesting, Isaiah, I read an article yesterday by Michael Garrison who said Wesley could teach us something about Black Lives Matter because Wesley was such a, advocate against slavery, one of the first. And it grew out of his twofold sense of the holiness of God and the human dignity. And and he gets that certainly from Isaiah, who has this tremendous sense of the holiness of God. But that translates into a sense of the enormous human uh, dignity, the sense of human dignity. And so all lives were precious. And Israel was intended to be a light to the nations and various times co-opted that where it, it drew within itself. So he was there to champion that other. And and the other couple of things is not, not rely on the powers around them, uh, either Assyria or Babylon or Syria or Egypt. They, you know, they were caught in that vice between those two great empires. <laughs> but instead of relying on God, they tried to rely on one or the other. And it always came back to haunt them. So it was and this, it was like this dual issue of bad religious practices and bad political alliances that sort of showed a lack of trust in God? Yeah, and, and 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 I don't know which comes first. Probably the lack of trust in God then really, well, they exacerbate each other, don't they? But they lead, lead themselves then to those two dimensions you've mentioned, yeah. Mm. It's, it's yeah. interesting that we're talking about how we can get away from, you know, the Bible doesn't have an instant interpretation. Uh, and everything like we were just talking about. But we look at Isaiah as this person that was called by God to speak truth to power. And it feels like the church is in a similar moment right now where the church should be. And I think Hyde Park, I look at at least those that I've seen on Facebook, I see people out doing that work, but often the church doesn't. I think it's the, the heartbreaking thing. We look at Isaiah and we look back and we see the church, the modern Western church at least falling into uh, the same pitfalls that the, uh, the that Isaiah was speaking against to the religious leaders at the time. Yeah. Uh, and you, you've heard it. Uh, let's keep politics out of, away from church worship services. And, you know, the church has had an uneasy alliance over the centuries with the powers. I mean, and that's probably why you need the prophets, I think, to illustrate how to navigate that. The church needs to be careful. Is Does it just act in sort of the judgment issue? 
because again, to follow Isaiah's lead, I mean, he was this prophet of enormous hope. I mean, when nobody else thought they would ever return from Babylon, of course, many of them didn't want to return. <laughs> Life was pretty good there. Uh, but Isaiah said, no, we're going to go home. And they said, you're crazy. No, no, we're going to go home. Yeah, no, God's doing that. How could God do that? And then, of course, they went home. And some of those lilting passages you referenced in Handel's Messiah, uh, <laughs> amazing. So they went, you know, they went back home. Uh, and he saw that when a few other people could see it. So I, 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 I hope the church always has a sense of, this well, it comes as we've mentioned before, out of a deep sense of awareness of God and God's sovereignty, a deep sense of trust that lends us to both uh, a sense of justice, but a, and a sense of hope. Uh, one of my dear friends, her brother, um, she's African American. Her brother is African American Methodist preacher. He was. He gave up what he was doing, moved within two blocks of where Floyd, uh, George Floyd was killed. He moved in there to be a part of a redemptive community. <laughs> those are hard things, but those are probably a message that we're called to hear and see where God might be leading us. Yeah, I think that that feels like something I've been challenged in lately is to let myself be uncomfortable more. And I feel like we've been talking a lot about the church, like Isaiah is almost a a model for us in some ways. In other ways, he's a very unique, singular person. But true for us, we should probably be, we talk a lot about being more like Jesus, but maybe we should also be more like the prophets. You know, uh, Oscar Coleman wrote a book on the theology of the New Testament, and it was all built around the various titles of Jesus. Hmm. All those titles, I would say almost all of them, maybe not, almost all of those titles were from the Hebrew Bible. And so when these early Christians were trying to figure out who in the world was this guy that changed our lives, so they had to go, so the suffering servant, and there are, what, three, four, five references to the suffering servant in Isaiah and that's where you get empathy, understanding, respect. Uh, that's the some of what's going on there. I think another one, things worth mentioning, this uh, uh, is the feminine side of God. Uh, Isaiah references like a mother, yes, like a mother yes. would never lose its uh, forget, neglect its child. So here's a prophet who has the highest view of God, almost imaginable. And is free to reference that uh, feminine side of God. Uh, 49.15, can a mother forget her nursing child? The, 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 the encounter in the temple. Here you have this amazing, awesome understanding of God. And he's free then also to see that God is like a mother who would never forget its child. I'm reminded of Henry Nouwen's uh, reading uh, a book about Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son. You, you probably know this story, but the, it, it focuses on the father's hands on the son. Uh, one's a feminine hand and one's a masculine hand because that's how he also sees God. So uh, I think we do a disservice of God if we see only 
the whole masculine piece. I mean, God is probably all sexual, but we ought to see this, whatever is implied by Isaiah. And I think what he's suggesting there is this deep compassion and uh, of a mother who would never forget their nursing child. And even the, the earlier passage you mentioned, 42, the laboring. <laughs> think how much God has labored over the two of you <laughs> or over all of Israel. I mean, I mean, what we've done to God. And here's God who continues to love us despite that. Is there a final thought you'd want to give on Isaiah? Or let's say you had to preach a text from Isaiah in the pulpit next week or in two weeks, what would you, uh, what text would you pick and what would you preach on? Well, if I had to preach a text, I would preach from Isaiah 55, which along with Isaiah 40, 31, um, about the eagle's wings, that's my favorite text. But Isaiah 55 is this great, wonderful, um, come to me, get food and drink without cost. Uh, the, the, the sort of the amazing sense of grace, and then it gets to be the next section is a democratization of the promises to David. That is to say, all of God's promises are no longer just to David, which was sort of Isianic, pre-Isianic theology. So he was pressing it out to all of us. And then you have that beautiful imagery there of God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts and God's ways are higher than our ways. But the sort of irrefutable work of God, uh, you know, I grew up on a farm. You had to really trust things would work out. And so here you have that. And then, you know, sort of the sound of music, the, the sort of the hills are alive and the trees are clapping the hands. And, and maybe that's a word I would use for COVID that, it's really a, a very hard time right now, and we need to very take it seriously. But there's going to be a day when uh, all things will be well. I mean, I, I guess I go back to Winston Churchill. Let's be honest about how bad things are. Let's be realistic. Let's let's do the blood, sweat, and tears. Let's do the hard work of social distancing. But let's also hold out tremendous hope and the uh, the promises of God. And so, yeah, I would be excited about the fact. I've got to preach in a few weeks. Maybe I'll do Isaiah 55. (laughs) Hope and judgment, two poles of the prophetic imagination. As you read this week, pay attention for language and images that evoke feelings of hope and feelings of judgment. These are major themes in all the prophetic books. And if you need a resource to guide you through the prophets, I recommend a book that our guest last week, Annie Norman Schiff, recommended, The Prophets by Abraham Joshua Heschel. We're still worshiping online Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. And you can join us on Facebook or at Hyde Park UMC forward slash live. You can also connect with us on Facebook, search for The Bible Project 2020 and request to join. Chris Hockman produced this episode, I'm Matt Hotho. See you next week.